feels good to be proven right and see that the Bernie Sanders campaign has legs. We have won New Hampshire. At the time I'm recording, this is 921, so I'm assuming they will do the formal announcement by the time this launches around 11 o'clock EST. But nonetheless, this is an exciting night for us, everybody. And I know that we've all said from the very beginning, Bernie had the legs to make this a real campaign. And the only people that didn't were the media hacks. Uh, We're going to go into them. We're going to do a brief overview of what happened in Iowa, uh, just to sort of put a bow tie on what happened in last week's episode, which was a little hectic. Uh, since I recorded it over like a two-hour period, coming back and forth, back and forth, uh, hoping to finally have the numbers, not expecting the rigor morale that actually ended up happening. So t- stay tuned. A lot. So a lot is happening right now. Bernie appears to be at either 29 to 31 percent of the vote, depending on county to county. We don't have a final vote total yet at this point, though. I think it's pretty clear he's going to win. MSNBC and CNN have clearly been given talking points because every single person, including the uh, reporter that they have covering the Sanders campaign, has been repeating the same sort of talking point that he underperformed from where he was in 2016, that a lot of these voters are split up now between Klobuchar and Pete. But the fact of the matter is, is that it is all uh, a half-truths. You know, in 2016, uh, there were only two real candidates in the race. I mean, yes, Martin O'Malley was there, but nobody really expected anything of him. And he, you know, he dropped out. Nobody, I bet you could not remember the month he dropped out in. When it happened, I don't remember and I don't even care to look it up because it's that meaningless. Um, But what we're seeing now, obviously, is a field with eight candidates. So it's a lot harder to have a monopoly on the counterculture vote the way that Bernie had in 2016. Furthermore, uh, imagine the Warren campaign being the only opponent we had to overcome. Uh, We would be at that 75 percent of independent votes. That's basically uh, what the Hillary campaign was, a a vague message of unity and plans. And she's a woman and she's a fighter without much uh, real meat uh, to the policies. Uh, So, uh, I mean, I I really don't see that in the Pete campaign or the Klobuchar campaign. Even their campaigns do not center on their identities as, as either like, let's say, a gay man or as uh, a woman, uh, I think both of them uh, mention those things uh, when it is politically expedient to do so, uh, or when it's relevant to the conversation. But in general, uh, they seem to they. I, it's not policy because you can't really even name the policies that they put out. Uh, what you what you get out of them is, is just that I'm a moderate. 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 And they just say that really like, basically, I'm not Sanders. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. 
but they say it in such a way that makes them seem more progressive than they are to a low information voter that combined with the just sheer media presence behind them uh, leads people to believe. Plus, I mean, let's just be honest. People go for the fresh new thing. Low information voters went for Bernie because he wasn't Clinton. You know, some people might be going for them just because they're not Bernie. I mean, you, you, you're always like, oh, who's going to be the next big thing? Oh, this kid sounds kind of hot. You go with them, right? Like in the case of Pete, I think that a lot of his support is manufactured. I think Iowa was stolen. I'm going to go down the uh, chronology of what I think happened in Iowa. And uh, some of it, all of it's true, but I'm going to superimpose my interpretation of it, which would be put as conjecture, let's say, where you're drawing a line between two things that may not be connected. I don't like the term conspiracy theory because I'm going to lay out facts exactly as they are. And if there's a narrative that that seems to form as a result of like trying to explain those facts, you know, it is what it is. But uh, before we get into that, I do want to say that this talking point that MSNBC has been putting out, CNN has been putting out, Sanders is unperforming, Sanders is underperforming, he won New Hampshire last time. That is just their attempt to dampen the success of New Hampshire, to treat it as if it was good but not great, to just try and soften public momentum behind Sanders. And... I, it's not working on us, and I, if it's going to work on the broader electorate, who can say? You know, I think the real test of our campaign is going to be in South Carolina and beyond. Uh, Nevada, Nevada, I think is go- we're going to really, really need to see some some turnout in Nevada. Obviously, Super Tuesday is the the decisive, you know, Helm's Deep. If we want to use a Lord of the Rings analogy, battle uh, before we go on, you know, uh, beyond there. But Super Tuesday is going to be massively important. I'm signed up to be a victory captain uh, for Bernie's uh, uh, coalition. Uh, I did not attend the canvassing training tonight. I wanted to watch the majority report uh, so that I could be able to talk about the news and what had been on it for this podcast. Uh, I will immediately sign up. But I'm just mentioning this, to be honest, so that people don't have a... uh, a viewpoint of me that I am perfect or even really always on it or always reliable. Like I, you know, I, I skipped out. I made a choice to watch the majority report instead. I wanted to watch the live stream to get some news in uh, and also to just watch, you know, the results start to roll in. I, I, I enjoy that kind of coverage and uh, I'm human. We're all human. You know, Bernie isn't calling on you to not be human. He is calling us to be as, as good as we can be. I dropped the ball tonight. I'm going to pick up the ball and run with it harder tomorrow. You know, I mean, that's all that he can ask of any of us. And I, I guess what I'm saying is uh, I'm not good. You know, I'm not ever going to tell you that I'm the best guy out there to follow. There are far, you know, uh, more driven, hardworking people than me. But I will always give you my uh, straight shooting thoughts. And I will always uh, explain things uh, in what I view to be an honest uh, format. So moving on uh, to what it looks like uh, tonight's uh, breakdown of polling is currently, just so I can give people a bit of a timestamp. Give me one second here. Looks like what we've got here in New Hampshire is 18,594 votes for Bernie with a 27.6% of the vote. Uh, 15,659 votes for Pete. So that's about a 3,000 vote difference. Uh, 13,000 votes for Amy Klobuchar, 
and 6,888 votes for Elizabeth Warren. That's the New York Times reporting 23 minutes ago. Uh, if I pull it up, let me see if I can refresh it and if there's anything newer. Uh, as of right now, Sanders has 27% of the delegates. Buttigieg is 24%. Klobuchar is 20%. Warren's still at 9%. Biden's still at 9%. Steyer's at 4%. Uh, a bit of, I guess, just mentioning this in case, you know, I, I'm sure that if you follow politics, this will uh, have made it into your purview before I bring it up. Andrew Yang obviously dropped out tonight. Uh, that was a bit of a shock to a lot of people. Uh, I thought at least he would go to South Carolina, but I mean, he was also firing staff. So you knew that he was, I guess, winding down his campaign. Uh, the Yang gang, obviously, we welcome you uh, in the Sanders camp. I encourage you to join. If you uh, if you want to see your policy enacted, there's really no better candidate uh, to push for that policy than Bernie Sanders. Uh, And I know that he doesn't have UBI as a part of his platform, but somebody that is a transformational candidate who is willing to bring material benefits to the population, willing to bring material benefits uh, to the American people at the cost of big business and the billionaires is the kind of person you can push if your policy is just, if it's meritable, if it's something that should be enacted. He's the kind of person you could absolutely push to have that policy added. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't think you can push Buttigieg or uh, Amy Klobuchar to a to really adopt anything in their platforms because they're not really listening to us. They're listening to what uh, the donors uh, push them towards, uh, what their preferred donors uh, recommend. I don't think that what the citizens or the public uh, mention really phases them. Warren, I mean, again, she's not going to win. I, she kind of, I mean, she blows hither and tither, you know? I mean, she, she's, she's a bit of a, a, a wisp and it shows, you know, she's, she's, she ran a campaign that's almost exactly out of Hillary Clinton's playbook. And there it is at 9%. You know, it, it's just not, it, it it's very clear at this point that Warren's campaign uh, is done. Uh, she keeps saying we're in for a long campaign. A lot of people are telling me like she keeps saying she's in for a long campaign. She's obviously not going to drop out. You know, my response to that is she also said Bernie Sanders uh, said a woman couldn't win, even though he encouraged her to run in 2015 uh, and, you know, wrote that into his book. And, you know, that's a well-documented exchange they had. Uh, I, I think that my understanding, and I brought this up in the past uh, of the discussion between Warren and Sanders was that, uh, Sanders uh, was asking her not to run to avoid splitting the progressive vote. Uh, and I'm sure at one point he did mention that that uh, Donald Trump would hit her over the head for being a woman because that's how he operates. Uh, and I think that maybe maybe at worst case, if I'm as uncharitable to Sanders as possible, maybe at worst case, he said it would be too much for her to overcome uh, against the Donald Trump candidacy or it was a risk. I don't believe he would have said that, but I, I am being uncharitable towards Sanders in this case as much as I think is fair. Uh, I don't think it is fair. I believe it's a a lie to say that he said the literal, a woman can't win the presidency. I think that's absurd. And a woman, uh, he even went on to say, in the case of uh, Hillary Clinton, did win the presidency by any metric that matters, which is 3 million votes. Now, in terms of practical effect, uh, she did not because our system is screwy and stupid and we need to change the electoral college. But the fact of the matter is... uh, I don't believe the story that 
Warren put out. I think at worst, Bernie said that it would be a lot to overcome against a candidate like Trump. But what I had understood at the time and what I had mentioned at the time was that I understood the conversation to be about not wanting to split, split the progressive vote. They wanted to have a united front to be able to take on the establishment. And she she did not agree for whatever, whatever reason. Uh, she believed either she was a better candidate or I mean, I, I, I don't know. At this point, I couldn't tell you why Elizabeth Warren is still in the race at nine percent. I mean, that's a dead campaign. Her, her moment came and it went. All, almost all of her support has evaporated and been absorbed into Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and the real lefties have gone to Bernie. Uh, but there's very little left for her. Uh, I somebody in the live stream chat for Sam's show mentioned that more than likely uh, we would see her back, uh, Amy Klobuchar. And I think that that's a fair guess. Uh, you know, at this point, uh, Warren would, she's kind of placed all her eggs in the I'm a woman basket. And I think that they kind of have a lot of overlap in, in the regards of, yeah, I had to pause there for a second cause I had to sneeze. Uh, but I think they have a lot of overlap in terms of their politics. Uh, they're both, uh, moderate. Uh, they, I, I would say have, milk toast commitments to Medicare for all. So at this point, I, I think that that's a fair, I think that's a fair guess. I think that not only that, but the other pitch that was made was that, uh, Klobuchar, uh, having a, a sort of threadbare campaign at this point is about to get a lot more donor money uh, because she just came in third. Uh, so she's going to need to pick up staffers. She's going to need to pick up surrogates and no one is better on the market right now than Warren, whose funding is almost certainly going to dry up as a result of these two poor showings, both in Iowa and in New Hampshire. Uh, so I, I think that it's safe to say that a lot of Warren's campaign stands to be absorbed by Klobuchar. That may not happen. You know, Warren, she could surprise me and go to Bernie. Uh, in my point of view, she's picked the wrong side too many times. She, she tends to err on the most disappointing side possible when it comes to either policies or her rhetoric or her way to run a campaign. Uh, so I, I mean, her, she, she just had a bunch of staffers quit, uh, claiming that, uh, Warren, uh, Warren's campaign tokenized them. A lot of black female staffers felt like they were there as showpieces, but not to be taken seriously or for their input to be valued. And that is sort of atypical of the Warren, you know, brand, uh, it, it's all just surface level shit. So at this point, uh, I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy with Bernie's performance. I, I don't care what the mainstream media is saying. Uh, we know it's a bullshit talking point. They've all, they've all been given it. There's a reason why they're all bringing it up in this. Like they're even like finding ways to shove it into conversations where they go, man, this is just not where he performed in 2016. It's like, Oh, you noticed that. Did you? There's eight candidates in the race, and last time there were three, and really only two, but let's be generous and say three. You know, I mean, it, it, it's literally unbelievable. It, it, The idea that anyone would expect him to match 20, if he was matching 2016 levels, well, we, the movement would be tearing down the walls of the establishment as we speak. If we, if these guys were all looking at like zero votes and Bernie just had like a monopoly, that would be incredible. That's not realistic. That's not how politics works. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know what else to say to that other than that it's a bullshit talking point that they're trotting out because they're desperate to dampen the mood. Uh, this is a moment of celebration. We need to use this momentum, seize on it, push forward. Again, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt to dampen our momentum. 
and we won't let it. We're not going to let it happen. Uh, so moving on to a recap of what happened in Iowa. So the breakdown of how things went uh, from Iowa, and I'm borrowing this timeline from a tweet, uh, but the breakdown goes something like this. So the results go haywire Tuesday night. Pete claims victory with no results yet reported. He just claims it. Results are at 62% the next day, 24 hours later, come out showing Pete in lead in SDEs, which is a bullshit metric, but fine. He's in the lead in SDEs, state uh, delegate equivalents. Uh, results bleed out slowly in reverse from favoring Pete to Sanders as Pete gains a benefit of media coverage up to Pete's town hall with CNN on Thursday night. Throughout this process, egregious errors are noted, some fixed, like the Deval Patrick one, where a lot of Sanders' votes went to Deval Patrick and Tom Steyer. Uh, but most of the errors directly benefit Buttigieg, including errors where Liz Warren and Amy Klobuchar votes were recorded by their precinct captains as being changed over to Buttigieg. At 97%, Sanders appears to be closing the gap. Pete's campaign calls Tom Perez, who calls for a re-canvas the next, canvas the next day. Note that we did not know, or at least I did not know, when Perez called for a re-canvas the next day at noon, uh, that an hour later the we would find out that Pete's campaign had called him last night. Uh, so that was, you know, on the timeline, it's like Pete calls his campaign the night before, and then the next morning, Tom Perez obviously announced a re-canvas. But from my discovery of it, Tom Perez announced the re-canvas. Then we found out that he had called them the night previous. So it came out after the fact. Uh, it was an unknown at the time, in other words. Uh, so final results sh that show Pete having a 0.1% lead in SDEs, but 6,000 votes behind the popular vote, dropped three minutes before a town hall. Numerous publications say there's no way to determine a winner, but CNN declares Pete the winner while he's on stage very publicly. Uh, the IDP say they will work on results. That th that's the Iowa Democratic Party. Uh, a litany of errors are noted, uh, almost all of them hurting Sanders, where he loses votes to uh, other candidates or directly to Buttigieg. But point is, is they dilute Sanders' votes amongst other candidates and feed Buttigieg votes from other candidates, again, like Klobuchar, Warren, and Sanders himself. The IDP leader, Troy Price, says that even though the results are fucked up, he can't change math errors because it would hurt the integrity of the process. He came out and said we it would be a crime to change these because it's a legal document. And uh, apparently, you know, obviously, I that, that came out later to be a, a falsehood. That's not true. That's not how it works. He went on stage uh, or went in front of the cameras and basically said, look, we're going to do the re-canvas and, you know, re-caucus it. And that would be the process to get these papers changed. But in the meantime, we can't do it. And uh, a legal professor said that that uh, I can go to the Ryan Grimm story after this, but but it, it's not a s legally salient argument. It's not true. And uh, so even though, you know, obviously it's evident Bernie won the Iowa caucus, Pete is seen as technically the winner and gets to call himself the winner by the media. Uh, and anybody who says otherwise, obviously, like myself, is, you know, making a conspiracy theory. No, everything I just laid out there is a fact. Now, it's also a fact that two days before the Iowa caucus, the IDC chair, Troy Price, uh, was at a party with uh, some of the staff from Acronym. That's the company that made the app uh, and the Buttigieg campaign. Now, that could be a crazy coincidence, but it seems to me 
strange, let's put it out there as strange, that a party chair that has no relation with Acronym, the company that uses the, that created the app, would be at a party with them and the Buttigieg campaign, and then all these errors line up to benefit Buttigieg. It's just a strange series of interrelated coincidences. Now, I'm not going to say anything beyond that. Everything I've laid out up to this point is a fact. You know, if it seems like I'm drawing a conclusion, it's only because a lot of this is very bizarre. And you can definitely see why people might jump to conclusions, let's say. I don't really consider it to be a jump so much as a step uh, because it, it's just so suspicious looking. And, and we're not crazy for thinking that 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 timeline is suspicious. It's odd. It's odd also that articles came out in August of 2019 where Perez was the one that was effectively pushing for a different app to be used uh, both for Nevada's caucus and for Iowa's. And this gives me a lot of heartburn for Nevada. Uh, but the point is, is Perez was the one supposedly that pushed for this to be used. And a member of the IDP, actually, not the chair, but uh, one of the people that came up with the plan uh, came out on Twitter with a story basically saying that we had approved a plan for how we were going to run the caucus and what app or what device we were going to use, and it got declined by the DNC. And then they basically took over the process from there. Uh, so they vetoed what they were planning, basically, Tom Perez and the DNC, and, and did it their way. Now, I don't know if that's a coincidence. But all of that timeline is well-reported fact. Judge Stafford did, in fact, come out and say, yes, their campaign called Tom Perez. Tom Perez did, in fact, call for a re-caucus. And Bernie did, in fact, get more votes than Buttigieg. I mean, that's an undeniable fact. So everything I've laid out, if it seems suspicious, you know, I don't know what else to say other than that it, it, it Iowa will be one of those things we look back on either if we win with the Sanders campaign as uh, their best attempt to stop us or if we lose they'll they will they will claim that we were crazy you know it, either way uh, it, it is just a speed bump in the larger uh, story of the Democratic primary uh, New Hampshire is also in my mind a speed bump though it's definitely one that benefits us uh, but it's not going to knock some of these candidates out. Obviously, Ber or Bloomberg has picked up a lot of speed, uh, but we're going to uh, go into what happened between him and, well, not him directly, but Benjamin Dixon, uh, who is a progressive uh, host like myself, a podcast sort of a host, does a YouTube show. It's a quality show. I recommend checking him out. Uh, he's a frequent guest on the Majority Report, which is another show that I frequently, you know, play clips from. But... Benjamin Dixon uh, had some audio from a 2015 interview with Michael Bloomberg. And this audio we're going to play for you now, but it, it's pretty disgusting to say, to put it lightly. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is very clearly a racist in my mind. He was a Republican. He voted for George Bush twice. Uh, so on the surface, there should be no reason why Democrats are supporting him. But unfortunately, my parents uh, are fans of his. And I think that, frankly, it just shows you how effective ads are. Uh, I think that to people in the in a certain generational divide, uh, cable news is viewed as more legitimate than it is by people in my generation. 
uh, my generation treat cable news uh, with extraordinary skepticism because the companies that own cable news, like Comcast, for instance, uh, have an agenda and they aren't going to put up hosts, anchors, uh, and pundits that conflict with that agenda because it would basically be like picking their own pocket. You know, it would be costing them money. They they put up hosts that are going to carry water for their agenda. So, you know, in, in the case of Michael Bloomberg, you know, he's a Republican in my mind, but that's usually good for big corporations. So is it any wonder then that uh, – a lot of these big corporations, you know, NBC, CNN, are very, let's, you know, use the, ter- the polite term, reluctant to hit Bloomberg. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to play the clip of what Bloomberg said, and, and then we'll discuss what the fallout of it was. 95% of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit one MO. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities, 15. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of the people that get killed. So you've got to be one of them. Spend the money, put a lot of cops in the street, put those cops where the crime is, which means in minority neighborhoods. So this is one of the unintended consequences is people say, oh my God, you are arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes. That's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is to throw them against the wall and frisk them. And then they start, they say, oh, I don't want that. I don't want to get caught. So they don't bring the gun. They still have a gun, but they leave it at home. Now, I understand if that first uh, clip is a little hard to hear. Uh, Obviously, it's not the best quality. Uh, But effectively, Michael Bloomberg is justifying his stop and frisk policy by basically just saying that, you know, I mean, racist stereotypes. You know, he's assuming that, you know, black, Hispanic neighborhoods, minority neighborhoods is where all the crime is. And that's why to get the guns out of the neighborhood, you have to stop and frisk them. This isn't borne out by real data. It's just a racist opinion by a former racist mayor and billionaire. Now. This may surprise you if you're a Republican or a conservative-leaning individual. And if you're listening to this podcast, I don't think that's necessarily true, but it could be. I don't know if you're checking us out for the first time or not. So if you're a conservative-leaning individual, it may surprise you that one of the top runners of the Democratic ticket would be such a bigot. Uh, And Joe Biden isn't much better. Uh, with Joe Biden, it's a bit more of just sort of like, I mean, we call him Uncle Joe. You know, it's a bit more of just sort of your old grandpa racist. Still very harmful because he's a senator or was and was the vice president. And with so much of his uh, influence on the levers of power, uh, it is unacceptable to have someone with that viewpoint in any position of power. And it needs to be challenged even if they don't have power. Any person with that viewpoint, no matter who they are, no matter how harmless they may seem, you should challenge that viewpoint. It is an evil viewpoint. Uh, But that clip of Mike Bloomberg uh, has gone viral, basically. Uh, And what I'm about to play for you is a snapshot of CNN uh, reacting uh, to that clip and uh, the host that launched it, Benjamin Dixon, and uh, what they think of him. 
so this is pretty stunning, frankly, for even mainstream media to say this. Uh, take a listen. So here's the thing. Important context here. We don't have the full tape. So this is obviously snippets that have been released. The podcaster and the writer that released this sound is clearly a Bernie supporter. If you look at his Twitter feed, he's very anti-Bloomberg. He is promoting a hashtag, Bloomberg is a racist. We don't know how he got the sound to begin with. So lots of questions are being asked, especially on the timing of this. As you noted in your introduction, a poll yesterday shows Bloomberg rising in the polls and particularly strong support in the African-American community. He polled at 22%, just behind Joe Biden at 27%. So the timing here and the mission here all calling into but question. But we also know, right, Christina, that Bloomberg is going to face continued questions about his, uh, about the stop and frisk policy, about. So that is a journalist, a host at CNN, one of their contributors, basically saying that Benjamin Dixon had an agenda in releasing that audio of Mike Bloomberg, and therefore it is invalid. Questioning his motivations, questioning how he got the audio, even though it's a matter of public record, it was an interview, uh, and it had always been available. I mean, it's just not something that it, it wasn't being withheld. You know, that's crazy. Uh, and I don't know what else to say of that other than that it's stunning for a news organization to come out against news. This is news. He is a candidate. He deserves to be vetted. I mean, these same people were crying bloody murder saying that Bernie Sanders has never been vetted. And now they come out when we give them just Bloomberg's own words, an audio recording of him saying some despicable racist things about the stop and frisk policy that he enacted while he was mayor of New York. And their reaction is to say, we don't know how he got this. He's obviously a Sanders reporter. He doesn't like Mike Bloomberg. You know, it, and it, it, it's just, it's oozing with bias. Now this, this CNN surrogate, uh, there was CNN, uh, uh panelist, uh, Christina Alisi, uh, is a former Bloomberg employee. She worked for Bloomberg, Bloomberg news. And, uh, her timeline on Twitter until she deleted a lot of these tweets basically read as a Bloomberg PR account. So you can tell that she's very much a Bloomberg supporter herself. She didn't have to obviously disclose that uh, when she attacked Ben Dixon. I mean, it it's disgusting, but this is how our media runs. Nobody checks them on their behavior. Nobody checks them on their conflicts of interest. They're just allowed to have conflicts of interest. It's It's baked into the cake, as it were. Uh, even if she didn't have conflicts of interest and wasn't a Bloomberg surrogate, she could just as easily be doing this. Chuck Todd does a lot of this, and we're going to go to a Chuck Todd clip in a bit, but before I get off of the Benjamin Dixon attacks, I mean, it, it's very easy for these cronies in the media to say whatever they want without pushback, because there's no punishment from the higher-ups as long as they're attacking Bernie Sanders or the progressive movement, because the progressive movement stands to cost these companies money. And in the case of Chuck Todd or 
even let's say Rachel Maddow, though she she's a little bit better at this. If you want to attack Sanders, that's okay. If you want to attack Bloomberg, it's not okay. And it's even discouraged on a personal level. And the reason for that being is that you may go to him for a job at some point. You know, obviously Christina Elisi came from Bloomberg News. That was where she got one of her presumably big breaks. And going from there to CNN. You can see why, in case she ever lost the job at CNN or wanted to maybe move up, go back to Bloomberg News, she'd want to keep that door open. So obviously, it's very important you disclose these conflicts of interest precisely because of what I'm describing. Like, There's a vested interest for the reporter in not being objective in regards to Bloomberg. This is the problem innately, by the way, with allowing a billionaire to run in the first place. Like, it, It's really... It's stunning. Again, I I don't know what to tell conservatives who say that liberals are overly sensitive about identity politics when we have someone like like Mike Bloomberg rushing to the top of the Democratic Party's ticket. Progressives have values. We hate Mike Bloomberg. We don't want him anywhere near the party. And in fact, his very existence is a crime in my mind in the sense that a, a billionaire is a policy failure. Someone who's as rich as Mike Bloomberg is a policy failure. He, no one makes a billion dollars by being an ethical human being, by doing right by others. Making $50 billion, $60 billion, you're screwing over all of your workers. And of course, Mike Bloomberg has his own history uh, with having women sign NDAs for sexual harassment in his office, whether it's like, as he calls it, a body joke or something deeper, we don't know because he won't release these women from their NDAs. And the media has no built-in incentive to go after him to get these women to release their NDAs or to be released from their NDAs so that we can ask them questions about it because of what I just outlined earlier. They may want to go to him for money at some point. I mean, when you have as much money as he has, he is like he likes to say, I'm completely self-funded, so I don't have a special interest. You are yourself a special interest. When you have that much money, you are a tour to you are a force yourself. You have more money than aggregated states like combined together. I mean, it, it's the amount of money fifty to sixty billion dollars is isn't something you can easily wrap your head around. It's orders of magnitude. People say that Bernie Sanders is a millionaire. Uh, as a way to try to like peg him as a hypocrite uh, for uh, taking on the oligarchy. I don't really know what their point is, is I guess the uh, gotcha of it all is, is that uh, Bernie can't or is faking his taking on of the oligarchy or that uh, he's the wrong one to do it because he's a millionaire. I mean, again, being a senator, it's very difficult to not make that kind of money. They get paid extraordinarily well, and he's like the poorest member of the Senate because he's not selling out. He only ever gets donations from his constituency. And if you're listening to this show, you know all this already. I only bring it up to say that he is, Bernie, infinitely better off than I am, having such a well-paying job uh, and having the best health care that you can get in the United States um, being a Senator and Bloomberg is orders of magnitude wealthier than he is. You know, the, the people talk about having three houses for Bernie, one of them he inherited, but bill billionaires and billionaires, especially at the Mike Bloomberg level, not even like Tom Steyer, although he also is an oligarch who has far too much money and was trying to buy his way into this election. And for a little bit, it actually looked like he was going to drop out tonight. That did not happen. 
but I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. He's been kind of a Bernie ally on the debate stage. Anyway, this is all segue. Point is, is when you have 50 to 60 billions of dollars, you can literally lose 59 billion dollars in ads and still be a billionaire. Like, does that like think about that? Tom Steyer, who's only like a one to two billionaire. Mike Bloomberg could outspend him by like orders, you know, squared, if you want to do it, like cubed, if you want to do it, like take whatever hundred million and then add another, you know, 200, 300, 400 million, 500 million, keep adding that money. He could literally buy up the land between here and California and just cover it in Bloomberg advertisements and it wouldn't cost him a dime. That's the degree of wealth he has. Like it, it's stunning that he isn't spending more given how much he has. But that's the nature of this sort of sickness of greed that these billionaires uh, are infected with where they just sort of accrue this wealth and sit in it, you know, as, as I've described in the past, like dragons, you know, a dragon horde. I mean, it, it, it's disgusting that he's even able to run, but that some Democrats support him really just shows you that most voters, whether they're Democratic or Republican, are low information voters. And they will vote for whatever name that they can read on a piece of paper. Mike Bloomberg is hedging his bets that he can lose these first couple states and it won't matter because he can outspend anyone else in the race to make up the deficit. And he is campaigning where no one else is at the, at the moment. Uh, just so that he can have it pay out later, basically. And if it doesn't pay out later, I mean, it it really means nothing to him. He's still an oligarch. I mean, it is unfathomable that this individual wants to run for president. And Sam Cedar made the point of saying that he's kind of like a brand at this moment. He used the analogy of Snickers. I'm not going to go there. But point is, is he's just like a brand that you see on TV. You, you don't really know much about him because he hasn't really been pushed on any of his policies on a debate stage because he hasn't been on a debate stage yet. Uh, Sam was really hankering to get Mike Bloomberg on a debate stage so some of his ideas and policies could be pushed back on. I find the idea of him being on the stage to be offensive. Uh, but this is the world we live in. So I guess if he is going to run for president, we might as well have him up on that stage so Bernie can make his case and basically just say to the people, this is wrong. He doesn't have a constituency. Mike Bloomberg is running for the wealthy. He's basic, and all he's doing, by the way, and what impact he's having uh, uh, to get the 15 or so percent of polling that he's at now, nationally, uh, the 11% in new, yeah, national uh, from the literally 11 hours ago, huh, uh, from Monmouth poll. Uh, but uh, point is to get to 10 or 11%. He is just spending more money than any of the others can even keep up with. Joe Biden's numbers are being hurt as a direct result of this. And he's going to start losing money in funders because all Bloomberg has to do is go to the Biden backers and say, stop giving him money. Stop giving anyone money. Just sit on your money. I'm going to win this race. I'm going to put it all up on my own cash. And that's a pretty hard thing to turn down if you're a wealthy oligarch. Like if Bloomberg comes to you and says, look, I'm a billionaire, you're a billionaire, but I'm much more of a billionaire than you are, you little, you know, puny bitch. Uh, so I'm going to just buy this election for us to keep our wealth safe. Just stay out of it, basically. Okay, 
Like that would be like, like you have all the policies I want. You're going to give me all the tax cuts I want. You favor my agenda and you're just telling me not to spend money on Biden. I can do that. Biden, Biden is clearly not a sure bet. Now I'm sure some of them are going to back Klobuchar or some of them are going to back Buttigieg because they have agendas that they don't necessarily know that Bloomberg is going to be in favor of. You know, obviously he is not in my view. Uh, he's he's a Republican. He's not going to do a progressive or even remotely liberal agenda. But the fact of the matter is uh, he can uh, convince a lot of these donors to step out of the race. And this is going to have an impact. Undoubtedly, it's having an impact on Biden. Uh, I suspect it's also having an impact on Warren. Uh, Klobuchar was always running a pretty threadbare campaign. I think she's actually going to gain, obviously, from New Hampshire. Buttigieg, it's hard to tell. You know, if you know the details about his campaign, that a lot of Clinton surrogates, a lot of Wells Fargo surrogates, and supposedly even CIA uh, coup architects uh, are all involved in his campaign. Uh, So it's hard for me to say with any kind of real sincere uh, conviction that he is going to be impacted by a Bloomberg. I do think Bloomberg will cut into Buttigieg's votes. In terms of funding, I suspect that Buttigieg is the corruption candidate. Like if you have an issue that you know is unpopular, Buttigieg is the guy that'll see that through. I'm not sure Bloomberg is. I think Bloomberg is the greed candidate. I I don't know if you could go to Bloomberg, for example, and be like, look, um, we want to, let me see, what would be a great wedge issue for, like, okay, here's a great wedge issue for Pete. Uh, Because we're doing the mandatory sign-up under Pete's plan, uh, where everyone is signed up to be a military citizen, it's like a fascist project. We're also going to start putting chips inside of people as a way to monitor them. Bloomberg may not be on board with that. He may be, or he may not be. But the point is, you're not going to be able to intimidate him to do so because he just has all the wealth. Uh, Buttigieg, on the other hand, very intimidatable. You just come up to him and say, here's a lot of money. Do what I want. He'll do it. And that's kind of what he is, is he is a corruption candidate. You go to him with your pet project, you give him enough money, he'll do it. So I don't know if he's going to be hurt, is I guess my point, by the lack of funders. I think there's enough funders with an agenda that Buttigieg will be okay. Biden, however, no. Biden, Biden's done because there's basically a vote of no confidence in Biden. Bloomberg would have been one of the obvious big backers of Biden, but Biden is falling apart. He can't make it through a debate. He stutters and loses track of what he's talking about. I mean, it it it's just not possible for Biden to keep going. And this defeat in New Hampshire is really, I mean, people are saying if he doesn't uh, pull off a win here in South Carolina, he's done. I think that it's very likely he's going to end up in third place even in South Carolina after this win. I think that it's very difficult to keep it under wraps uh, at this point that he he does he can't go the distance. Uh, so here's another clip, by the way, of CNN uh, talking with Bloomberg uh, back in 2013. Uh, your your super PAC recently spent more than two million dollars on a house race uh, in Chicago. You were successful. I, I guess two questions on that. One is how is that spending any different from what uh, conservatives who are maligned for such activities like the Koch brothers? How, how is it any different from what they do? And is this the future of Mike Bloomberg after your mayorality ends at the end of the year? Is this where you're going to be uh, channeling your efforts, your energy, and your money? 
Well, I don't know what I'm going to do in 288 days. I guess go out and look for a job. I work cheap. I get paid a dollar a year now, so uh, salary's not going to be the problem. Uh, in terms of what we're doing versus the Koch brothers, David Koch, I know very well. He's very conservative, much more than I am. But David Koch really believes, and he's trying to uh, help to get the policies that he thinks would be better for society through. He's using his own money. I have no problems with what he's doing, and I'm sure he wouldn't have any problems with what I've done. New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, thank you so much for your time and for your view. I mean, even right there, you can see it. Like, Jake Tapper is another one of those types. I don't know why he didn't come to my mind earlier when we were talking about Chuck Todd, but uh, who I still have an awful clip of him to do. I mean, my God. But point is, uh, you can you can hear in Bloomberg that he's fine being compared with the Koch brothers. He thinks what they're doing is fine, uh, even though I view them as a undemocratic force uh, that has done irreparable, not irreparable, but immeasurable harm to the country uh, with her or his, uh, their, well, one of them's dead, uh, with the agenda of the Koch brothers, uh, their conservative agenda, the damage it's done uh, to this country. I think it's fair to say they have not been a force for good in the world. Uh, and... Mike Bloomberg's fine with that comparison. He's fine with that comparison because that is who he is. He's an oligarch. He's like, well, they're much more conservative than me. Not really. You both agree that having untold amounts of wealth that you just get to lord over the people beneath you and use as like uh, a, a, a bludgeon to, to get what you want. You know, he's like, oh, you know, I only get paid a dollar a day right now. I work for cheap. You know, salary is not the problem. Of course it's not the problem. You're an oligarch. You own un unfathomable amounts of wealth. No special interest controls me. You are special interest. Your agenda takes priority. You can literally, he's bribing people to say nice things about him. For $150, you too can say something nice about Mike Bloomberg. Or if you, if you want to say something nice about Mike Bloomberg, you will get paid $150. I mean, that is how easy it is to appease these people. And, of course, Mike Bloomberg's staff, if you ask them, hey, why are you supporting Bloomberg? What's a policy he's done you support? They go, I don't know, but he's paying me, like, you know, $18 an hour. My parents came to me and said, don't you want to work for Bloomberg? He's a liberal and he can win and he's paying people $18 an hour to work for him. You know, uh, how much are you making for Bernie right now is what they asked me uh, because they know that I'm politically active. And for them, you know, what matters is Trump loses. They really don't see the difference. And... I don't know what my where I fail in trying to reach them and explain that this is not an acceptable human being to support, that he is a Republican in all but name. But, you know, it it you know, that's that's a personal grievance, I suppose I have, or a personal challenge. Uh he is not a Democrat. You know, Sanders is constantly accused of not being a true Democrat, even though he lives up to the FDR legacy, uh, something that Rokana was keen to point out earlier today. Rokana is someone in the past. If you go back and look at my blog, um, the first blog post I did, I mentioned Rokana and said that even though he's more of like a Warren style Democrat in terms of what he supports and what his rhetoric reflects, I've said from the beginning he's useful to the movement. So I tend to avoid calling him or not calling him out. I call him out whenever he does wrong, which is a fair amount of the time. Uh, but I avoid rhetoric of cancellation 
I should should, should say. I, I see a fair amount of that from lefties on Twitter who say, why does Bernie keep this guy around? He's not a lefty. He was scolding us, for instance, the Bernie online uh, Twitter force. He was scolding us, the Bernie bros. Let's just you know use the, the pejorative uh, derogatory term. Uh, for our behavior towards Nero Tandon and Joy Reid, even though both of them are lying propagandists. And uh, he scolded us and basically said, I'm seeing a lot of very sexist replies. I was like, we're disagreeing with you. It doesn't mean that we're sexist. We're saying that these people are lying about Sanders and we're pointing it out and we get tired of pointing it out. If it seems like we're hostile, it's because we don't consider these people to be good faith actors. Right now, Nira Tandon, 28 minutes ago, just did a tweet that says, just a reminder that Vermont is next door to New Hampshire and Senator Sanders has been in the eye of New Hampshire voters for five years. For Buttigieg to be this close to something and obviously a great night for Amy. I, I don't I, I I guess they're basically saying it means Sanders isn't that uh, impressive. Uh, it may get a few points, but the polling average was a seven point yesterday. And, you know, I mean, whatever. Uh, point is, is Nero doesn't like Bernie. So when we had Roe come out and defend her, a lot of people wanted to cancel him. I said at the time uh, to one individual that Roe is the kind of person that would fall into the Elizabeth Warren camp, but I would rather have him with us than against us. He'd be a real problem uh, if he had gone to like a Liz Warren style Democrat because he adds a lot of progressive legitimacy to, to a platform uh, because he does have an actually strong anti-war stance. He's an architect of the Yemen resolution, uh, the war powers resolution to get us out of the war in Yemen. Uh, so I was saying at the time how I really think that it was uh, a good move uh, to snap him up and how he's useful to the movement. It doesn't mean that you give him unilateral powers. You don't make him secretary of state, but you do put him in a position to maximize his usefulness, uh, a cabinet position that you can really take advantage of his convictions and more importantly, his ability to fight against centrist talking points on their terms. In fact, let's go to this clip just so you can hear Rokana basically fight out a centrist talking point on its own terms so I can sort of like make the case for why he's useful. Do you think ideology is a smart move for the Democrats to have someone calling for a revolution? Do you think that, I mean, mostly people center left, center right tend to be the ones that win these primaries and win these generals. What do you think? Do you think the country's in a mood for an ideological revolution right now? I think what they're in the mood for is the completion of FDR's New Deal, but a new deal for the 21st century. And I say Bernie Sanders is an FDR Democrat. Here's what he's talking about. Everyone should have health care. Everyone should have education. Everyone should have basic child care. Basically, the things that I had uh, growing up. I represent Silicon Valley. Let me tell you, Bernie Sanders is not talking about nationalizing Apple. There's no way I could represent Silicon Valley and support him if that was the case. He's talking about giving people a basic shot at the American dream and fulfilling the vision from FDR uh, forward. So... Obviously, that clip right there, I mean, that was masterfully done. That was a great clip by Rokana. I, I like how he just sort of like faces, you know, Chris Matthews and, and takes an obviously stupid talking point. And more importantly, he historicizes Bernie's own presence in American politics with the Democratic Party. Uh, and that is one of the that that's what makes Roe useful is he's very good at speaking to these centrist people in terms that they have a very difficult time pushing back on. He comes into their neighborhood and plays their version of basketball and he beats them at it, right? Like, I mean, that that's the kind of politician Roe is. 
And that's what makes him so useful is because he's so kind and chummy and because he represents Silicon Valley, he he is able to talk to them, you know, like I represent one of the wealthiest districts in America. You know, I mean, that that is a useful component of the campaign to have uh, as a shield, more or less, against the more unhinged and nasty uh, establishment talking points. And I, I... I, I don't want to cancel him. I don't think that he is a socialist. You know, he's not. Uh, he's a compassionate capitalist, so he's more of a Liz Warren type. But, you know, a, a movement takes all stripes, you know, and, and Roe is the kind of person that you can do a lot with. You can really have a lot of gains with Roe, uh, especially in a campaign. I don't know as much once you actually get elected, but he he's a bridge builder. So he he's a useful component of the Sanders coalition. And I personally am happy to have him, even if he does piss me off from time to time. Uh, but uh, all that said, let's go to this Chuck Todd clip that I have been uh, teasing for a while. Uh, Chuck Todd uh, is about to say something. I mean, it, it. he's about to compare Bernie Sanders to the Nazis. He's about to compare Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, which, I mean, you hear so much of. But he's about to compare us the online brigade to being brown shirts to being fascists you know and that's it, it's disgusting so take a listen hey, i want to bring up something that um jonathan um last put in the uh, bulwark today and it was about how in ruth we've all been on the on the receiving end of the of the birdie online brigade and here's what he says he says no other candidate has anything like this sort of digital brown shirt brigade i mean except for donald trump the question no one is asking is this. What if you can't win the presidency without an online mob? What if we now live in a world where having a bullying agro-social media army running around, popping anyone who sticks their head up is either an important ingredient for or a critical market marker of success? Okay, wow. okay that's I like- know everybody's freaking out about this, but you saw the MAGA rally that's preparing around here. There are people coming from three or four states on that. That's real, and, you know, that is a, this is like burning. Uh, that is a really depressing sentence that you just read. And but we saw a little bit of this at the state party Democratic dinner Saturday night where Pete Buttigieg was talking about how it's not you can't um, always have a revolution. And the Bernie supporters there who had great flashing purple signs started chanting Wall Street Pete, Wall Street Pete. This is this is the makings of an ugly primary season coming ahead of us and the makings of a potentially really ugly general election campaign this is a part of the campaign that we never had to worry about four years ago yeah and i think the question becomes what if we get to the convention and bernie sanders does not have anywhere near a majority but he has a plurality he has 35 37 percent of the delegates and he goes to the convention and says i won more primaries than anyone else i have more delegates than anyone else i dare you to deny me the nomination superdelegates right you don't have superdelegates anymore i mean on the first ballot ballot. at least on the first ballot you don't have the members of congress who would be the elders i mean that was exactly the reform that the bernie sanders people demanded i want to say this though about this sort of online army and again we've we've all been no, we've all victimized been, and, and encouraged and responded to you say one word critical they, thing of they, sanders they, they, they dig through everything yeah. and they, they sort of attack like a pack of dogs here's the thing those people and i've never been the person who says twitter's not real twitter is real a lot of those people are actual seven percent of the country yeah you know they they are sort of talking at home but the vast majority of americans aren't on twitter arguing about these things now how about that how about that 
Chuck Todd is a completely vacant, morally vacuous cretin who represents the worst parts of the establishment because he's not very bright. He's a mediocre white man. He's a mediocre white liberal. He's a rich white liberal who is carrying water. I mean, when Bloomberg got in, he said, who's to his left? Which is a completely stupid and insane thing to say. But again, he keeps getting every debate moderated. He keeps being allowed to go up uh, on these panels and just completely uh, debase and humiliate himself and say things as absurd as people like us who are the best. We are the remedy to Donald Trump. We are the cure to the Donald Trump symptom that plagues society. It's our version of intersectionality. It's our coalition, which is the most diverse in this campaign, in this race. Uh, it's made up predominantly of people of color, working people, teachers, unions, like women. Like Women support this campaign more than any other, more than the literal two female campaigns or uh, female candidates. Uh, and women of color support this campaign more than any other. Uh, so to tank us and our drive to get some just basic humanitarian needs like healthcare or a clean environment that we can all live in to take or housing to take those things and then say that you're brown shirts for even asking for them for owning people like Chuck Todd on Twitter for their completely stupid wrongheaded takes is just asinine. I mean, it, it, the meme that I, I use frequently is whenever, you know, you see a stupid person in a comment section on Twitter say Bernie supporters and Trump supporters are the same. I'll post a meme that I have where it's like uh, oppression of people is bad. Oppression of most people is actually good. It's like I'm seeing double. That is the meme. The centrist is the person saying, it's like I'm seeing double. We're the people saying oppression is bad. And the Trump people are the ones who are like, oppression of most people is actually good. We literally couldn't be farther apart. And the only reason why dumb centrists can't tell us apart is because either A, they're like Chuck Todd, where they're being deliberately disingenuous because they carry water for the oligarchy class. Or because they're legitimately too well taken care of. They're too well off to know the difference between one angry audience from another. The fascists who just marched in D.C. are angry because they view themselves as being displaced in society because it's browner than it used to be. Those people need to be fought and pushed back on and challenged in every avenue you can find. Their anger is one born of hate. Our anger is one born out of, hey, I would really like to be able to not go broke going to the hospital. Hey, it would really be nice if I didn't have to read a new article every day about how there's an ice cap melting and we're all going to die by 2030. You know, it's like little things like that, which you'd think would be obvious. But for some reason, we are treated as the exact same as these people. And again, someone like Chuck Todd is doing this deliberately. Like when he complains about how we are owning him on Twitter where his ang the angry army that you need now to win a campaign. Uh, it's because his fifis are hurt. It's because his feelings are hurt. It's because he doesn't like it when we push back on him for his stupid takes. Here's the thing, Todd, you're a rich millionaire. You have everything in life handed, handed to you. Wow. Mm, heck up. You have everything in life handed to you. You have no business lecturing anybody else about their tonality. You can get off the internet. 
No one is for it. Like, this is the thing that's crazy. I think that you should read our comments so that you can learn something and change your takes. But if you just don't want to read them, that's okay. That's fine. There is no world in which I'm able to hurt you through the internet. You're a rich millionaire with a job on MSNBC. Your job is literally to go on TV and lie to the American public for Comcast. To carry water for Comcast. And you want to come out here and claim that we're the same as the Trump people? A bunch of brown shirts compare us to Nazis? Fuck you, Chuck Todd. You need to resign. You should be fired. It's disgusting. No other campaign is treated the way we're treated. And then they wonder why we get mad. Oh, you Bernie people are so angry. Gee, I don't know. Maybe because we're regularly called Nazis by people that work in the media. And it's not like it's the Fox News. We get an easier time doing interviews at Fox News than we do with MSNBC. I mean, that stuns me. I, I don't know how... I don't know even how to uh, uh, comprehend that that would ever take place. I despise Fox News. It is a lie factory for the Republican Party. And yet somehow I live in a world where the best Democratic candidate, the front runner for all intents and purposes, who is steadily gaining in spite of a constant stream of hate poured on him from the mainstream media, I am able to wake up and know definitively I hate MSNBC more than Fox News now. That I could get, if I was ever going to do an interview, a fairer interview on Fox News than MSNBC. Because MSNBC is determined to defeat us. And then after, and only after they've defeated us, will they consider uh, challenging the Republicans in any meaningful way. The amount of time and segments they spend attacking Bernie and saying that his movement, they, they said our movement wasn't real. They say our movement isn't practical. They say that we can't win over working people. They say we can't win in the Midwest. They say we can't win over people in West Virginia. They say all of this stuff is untrue. None of it's borne out by polling. All polling says the exact opposite. The actual reason, which is the reason they never cite, but is the actual reason at the front of their mind, is the same reason why they praise Bloomberg. And why they're so quick, like Chuck Todd is just chomping at the bit to be like, who's the Bloomberg's left? You know, it. the entire battlefield to them is about money. That's what it is. They have a contempt for working class politics. They have a personal contempt for Bernie Sanders and his movement because it's a repudiation on the system that enriches them. It's a repudiation and a critique on the system that allows them to say whatever they want to say on Twitter or on MSNBC. It's, it's a repudiation of their position in the world. Whereas Bloomberg is the logical conclusion of their position of the world, of the system that allows their position to exist. Bloomberg is a potential boss. You know, like you don't want to attach some, attack someone that you might one day want to be hired by for Bloomberg News. I mean, it, it's insane. It's absolutely insane that we allow someone like him in the race. But all this is to say, we're going to end on a good note. Here's a clip from earlier today from New Hampshire, showing you that all of the MSNBC propaganda against Bernie Sanders, sometimes, sometimes it doesn't have the effect that you think it will. Who did you vote for? I voted for Bernie. Um, although there are a number of candidates that I really like. And so I felt like I, I 
when I finished voting, I was still undecided, um, including Elizabeth, including Michael Bennett, for that matter. Now, that's sort of a paradox, to, to decide and then feel undecided. So you're a complex person. Well, <laughs> yes, but I want to say the reason I went for Bernie is um, because of MSNBC. And Go on. <laughs> I think it is completely cynical to say that he's lost 50% of his vote um, from the last time when there were two candidates. Now there are multiple wonderful candidates who would be great presidents and people that we could, I think, that we can unify and get behind. But the, the, the kind of the stop Bernie cynicism, cynicism that I heard from a number of people, I watch MSNBC, MSNBC constantly, so I heard that from a number of commentators, and so that just, it made me angry enough, I said, okay, Bernie's got my vote. This is a, such an interesting point. What you're saying is, and, and we take criticism because we're journalists, right? We, we ought to be open-minded. You're saying that hearing from people, whether it's guests, contributors, the conversations you've heard that you felt were designed to tear down uh, Senator Sanders or quote-unquote stop him actually endeared him to you. Absolutely, absolutely. I could have chosen a, several candidates, but that's what pushed me over the edge for Bernie. That's really interesting, and thank you for sharing it. See, I knew you, I knew you were complex. That's a whole, that's a lay. And so that's, you know, that's a wrap. That, that I think, is a good note to end on. Uh, at this time, I believe they've declared us the winners of New Hampshire. Let me pull up the breaking New Hampshire primary. Uh, in New Hampshire, Bernie Sanders would outspend seven to one on television by opponents in aggregate. We've seen a lot of money this cycle, but money doesn't always support. Uh, da, 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 da. New Hampshire, Ellen Reed reporting voters decided no. I'm not seeing Bernie is losing because he's only winning by a small margin. No, he's won. Okay, so he won. Bernie is winning still in New Hampshire. Well, there you go. So uh, that's awesome. And uh, that clip to end on was awesome. Bernie I have right now is at 26%. Buttigieg at 24%. Klobuchar at 20 So, you know, we'll see as the night goes on, as the rest of the precincts come in. But Bernie looks like he's locked up New Hampshire, and that's great news. So you guys have a good night. I'll see you all next week. And uh, fuck MSNBC.